Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship this morning. We're grateful that you are here and that you have come to Ivy Creek today. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them out and turn with me to the book of Revelation. And we'll go back to chapter 2, where we will pick up again where we left off last week in our new study through uh, the the seven churches uh, that Jesus wrote letters to. And the title of uh, this series is Letters from Our Lord. And we want to pick up this morning with the church there in Smyrna. And particularly, uh, I think the church here in Smyrna has a a very real and timely message for all of us, uh, specifically because it it deals with the issue of suffering. And particularly, it deals with the issue of suffering that comes as a result of being persecuted for having identified oneself with Christ. And I believe that embedded in this letter that Jesus writes here in Revelation 2 uh, is a a message for us to, to, to help us understand how can we deal with suffering in our own lives? How can we bear up underneath it? How can we face the difficulties that come our way, particularly as it pertains to being Christians in this dark and lost world in which we live in? How can we bear up underneath that suffering that we face and just in the suffering that we face in general? In my introduction to this entire series last week, I I mentioned to you that that all seven of these letters really come with a context. And that's the first point I want you to note. I'm going to repeat it again this week for your benefit, uh, just to help us remind ourselves, what is the context of these letters? Well, the first context that we see is that this letter, these letters are written in order to reveal Jesus to us. It is the revelation of Christ that we learn about most in these letters. In chapter 1, the whole book begins by telling us this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we begin to realize, what John does is write down the vision, really, of what he saw, the Lord Jesus who revealed himself to him on that Lord's Day as he was there on the island of Patmos. And as we read through the, the, the description of who Jesus is and, and how he appeared to John, what we begin to realize is that every one of these letters that Jesus writes in chapters 2 and 3 goes back and pulls some of those details out of that description of him in, in chapter 1. Jesus makes sure that the churches understand some things specifically about him. And, and each one of those revelations of the, of the character of Christ comes into play as the letter then unfolds before us. And, and so I say that contextually this, the, these letters are about the revelation of Christ is because they're designed to reveal Christ to us. These letters are designed to reveal the Lord Jesus to the church. But that's not all. Jesus closes each one of these letters that He writes by saying this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we know that each individual letter that Jesus wrote was actually intended to be read by all the other churches as well. He wrote specifically to Ephesus and he wrote specifically to Smyrna, as we'll read this morning. But all the other churches, were Jesus desired for them to read those letters as well. And as we noted then, therefore Jesus wanted all the churches, and he even wants our church today to pay attention to what he says to each of these individual churches. And so it's not just the revelation of Christ as the context, but also we see that these letters are designed to revive the church. So the revelation of Christ and the revival of the church really is the context 
of all of these letters. And understanding that, quite frankly, I think, will be very helpful for us this morning, particularly as we dive into the second letter of the persecuted church there in Smyrna. So would you read with me, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 2, as we hear the Word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our fathers, we come to you... uh, this day and as we gather around your open word and as we hear it and as we read it for ourselves, we ask that your spirit who authored it and who has preserved it through all these years now open our hearts to be able to receive it. That You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand the truth of what you have written, not just to the church in Smyrna, but to the church here at Ivy Creek and not just to the the, the other people here at Ivy Creek, but to each and every single one of us. Help us to, to, to be able to appropriate these truths into our hearts and, and to be able to examine our own hearts and then to be able to be encouraged as we go and continue to serve you in the areas that you have given us. So we pray ultimately for your glory and for your honor. We pray that you would be lifted up and exalted, Lord Jesus, and that everything that we do and say would bring glory to you. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So you'll notice that that our text here begins the same as it did last week when we looked at the church in Ephesus. And we read here that that the Lord addresses it to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And scholars I mentioned last week debate on whether or not this angel that Jesus is writing to is an actual heavenly body that he has assigned to oversee the church there. Or is Jesus writing to the bishop or to the overseer of that particular church. There's debate with regard to that. What is not debated, though, is the the church to whom this letter is actually going to. And that's the second point that I want you to see on your outline. The church is the church there in Smyrna. Now, here's the difference. Last week, I mentioned to you that the church in Ephesus, we probably knew more about that church than we did any other New Testament church. But we don't know really much of anything with regard to the church there in Smyrna. We don't know when it was founded. Uh, there's no reference to it in any of the New Testament letters written by either Paul or, or, or Peter or, or even any, anything along those lines. And so what we don't know about Smyrna, though, really pales in comparison to what we do know about them. What we do know is that Jesus wrote a letter to these believers there in Smyrna who found themselves enduring suffering for the sake of the name of Christ. Now, The city of Smyrna was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus in the Roman-controlled region of Asia Minor. And it's in the modern-day country of Turkey. In fact, uh, the city of Smyrna still exists today. It's known by another name. It's known by the name Izmir. 
But by all accounts, it, is it was then and it still is a fantastic city. The westernmost side of, of this city was, had a magnificent harbor that opened up into the Aegean Sea. And there was a fine road system that kind of spread out from there all the way into the interior of Asia Minor, which set itself up to be a Smyrna for to be a hub for all kinds of trade and commerce. And therefore, Smyrna was a very, very wealthy city that possessed a lot of civic pride. In fact, the, the, the citizens of the city boasted that Smyrna was the glory of Asia. Politically speaking, Smyrna was an important city because because of its allegiance to Rome, it was a city that was allowed to govern itself, which was a little rare in that part of the world and at that particular time. But their freedom of self-government, of governing, was reciprocated back to Rome with Smyrna being able to set itself up as a center for the worship of Caesar. In fact, the cult of empire and emperor was a matter of great pride for Smyrna. All of its citizens were required to to take a little pinch of incense and to drop that incense into a burning flame that was perpetually burning before the bust of Caesar. And as they did that, that was considered to be an offering that they were paying to Caesar. And then they would recite the words, Caesar is Lord. And having offered the pinch of incense and, and, and having said Caesar is Lord, then the citizens of Smyrna were given a certificate that verified that they had completed their religious duties. Now, to refuse to do so would automatically brand one as disloyal and they were considered an outlaw. But that's exactly what these Christians who made up the church in Smyrna refused to do. They refused to bow before Caesar's bust. They refused to, to offer the incense on the fire that burned there. And they refused to declare Caesar was Lord. And you can understand why, because to have done so would have been idolatrous. It would have been to say that someone else other than Jesus Christ was worthy of their worship, and they refused to do that. And so consequently, because of their unwillingness to conform, they were condemned as being unpatriotic and even accused of treason. In his commentary on this passage, William Barclay, he writes this, he says, Nowhere can life have been more dangerous for a Christian than in Smyrna. For a man to become a Christian anywhere was to become an outlaw. In Smyrna, above all places, for a man to enter the Christian church was literally to take his life in his hands. And then he finishes this way. He said, in Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes. So this is the church to whom our Lord writes, it's a church that found itself marginalized, in its existence, and persecuted and suffering because it would not bow to the idolatrous worship of Caesar. But Jesus had taken note of these believers in Smyrna. He knew what they were facing. You know, even in that I find encouragement. You know, how often in our lives do we find ourselves facing situations and in different circumstances and we wonder, I wonder if anybody knows what's going on with me. I wonder if anybody's aware of the things that I'm facing. And sometimes we tend to become a little self-centered and inward focused. And we think maybe nobody knows. But you know what the best part about this is? Jesus says in verse 9, I know. Those words right there alone tell you something important about God. He knows everything that you're going through. 
He knew what this marginalized, persecuted, suffering church right there in the middle of Asia Minor was going through. Even though they were facing all kinds of difficulties, Jesus knew it all and He begins by telling them that. But before He tells them what He knows they're going through, He does something important. He makes sure He reveals to them who He is. In fact, note the next point on your outline this morning is Christ's character. And in verse 8, we learn this about Christ's character. First of all, he says he is the first and the last. Chapter 1's already revealed to us exactly what that is. He, he says in, in verse 8 of chapter 1, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In verse 11, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. In verse 17, he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. He is revealing to this characteristic to this church in Smyrna. He's bringing that back up and telling them that again for a particular reason. He is letting them know that he is unending. He is the unending Savior. You see, even though these Christians were in dire peril, Jesus is reminding them that they could stand up against the pressure that they were under and not lift their hearts to another, not bow their knee to another, and not worship another because the one who had existed long before their circumstances had ever begun would still be in existence long after their situation was already rectified and completed. And Vance Havner has said it this way. He says, Jesus says, I was here before there was anything to fear, and I will be here after all the things you fear have passed away. Jesus is unending. And I want you to know that's great comfort. There's something for us to understand about that. To know that our Lord will outlast anything that you and I are called to endure. But that's not all. Jesus goes on to reveal this about himself. He says, I am the one who was dead and came to life. In other words, he's not only unending, but he's undefeated. He's not only unending, he is undefeated. By rising from the dead, Jesus silences all of his foes. He is victorious over the grave and therefore death has no power over him. We can even say it this way as James Hamilton has. He says, Jesus is bigger than death itself. And given what the church in Smyrna faces, he writes, that reality is one they must keep in their minds if they are to be faithful. Now I want you to consider how important this revelation is had to be for this church in Smyrna and how important it is for you and for me. You see, no matter what happens, regardless of the situation, from before the beginning to after the end of time, the risen Christ will be with you. You can hold on to that. Barclay says this, when a person realizes that great truth, there enters into his or her life a new security. Nothing unbearable can happen to you if you can never be separated from Jesus Christ. Have you ever truly thought about that and appropriated that to your life? Nothing, nothing unbearable. Didn't say nothing bad. Didn't say nothing difficult. It says nothing unbearable can ever happen to you if you can never be separated from Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's unending and He's undefeated. And you belong to Him. Let me say this to you by way of application. It's right here that we really need to contemplate the wonderful majesty of the Lord. Here is where you and I will have to ground ourselves if we are to live faithfully a life of devotion to Jesus and do that regardless of whatever circumstances may come our way. 
You see, if we can understand who Jesus is and we understand that we are linking ourselves up to Him, the unending and undefeated one, then we will be able to stay faithful all the way till death and we will be able to live well and we will be able to even die well when we become convinced that Jesus is bigger than any trouble that we might face. So here's the question. Is He? For you, is He bigger than any trouble that you may face. If you stopped and truly contemplated your life and your circumstances, would you conclude that your conviction is that Jesus is bigger than all the things that you're facing? What I want you to know is that if you do not know Jesus, you do not know the one who has conquered death and has freed us from the fear of it. If you do not know Christ then you do not know the one for whom all time and no event can ever separate us. But here's the good news. The good news is He invites you to come to know Him. The good news is, is that He invites you to come behold His glory and He invites you to, be, to, to come and to know the one who not only can save you, but is mighty to save you. Oh, that's just verse 8. We hadn't even gotten to the letter yet. Next we see point number four is your commendation, the commendation that Jesus gives. And notice that it is a commendation of perseverance and suffering. He commends them for persevering in the midst of the suffering that they were experiencing. And, and, and notice these are the pressures that they're under. And, and these pressures come in, 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 in threes really here. The first thing that you realize is that they were afflicted. There was affliction that they were experiencing. He says, I know your tribulation. That word literally means pressure. It means affliction from the outside that presses in on one on the inside. And these Christians, he says to them, I have seen the pressure that's being exerted upon you to conform and to deny me. And I have seen that you've been opposed and persecuted on behalf of me. Not only that, but Jesus goes on to say this. Notice the next point. He says, I know your abject poverty. There are two words in Greek that can be translated poverty. The first one is like, it's the word that kind of means if you get to the end of the month and you have spent every dime you've got and you've sort of gotten all the way through but you really don't have anything left over and you're sort of just sitting there and you think, well, I'm poor because I don't have anything left over. There's a word for that in Greek. That's not this word. This word is the word patokos, which literally means you ain't got nothing. You can't pay the bills that you've got. You don't have food in the pantry. There's nothing in the refrigerator. You are lost. You have nothing left. You are totally destitute of any material availability and any material things. It means to have nothing. It means abject poverty. That's the word that Jesus uses here. And he says, I know that you are living with absolutely nothing. Which is significant because they're living in Smyrna, which had absolutely everything. They're living in a city that was wealthy beyond compare. It was one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. And yet these Christians have nothing. They were poor to the point of being destitute. But did you notice the parentheses there? The parenthetical remark that Jesus says, I know, I know your poverty, but hey, you are rich. Now, I don't know about you, that just kind of stops me when I'm reading and I see that, wait a minute, how, how can you use the word in Greek that means having absolutely nothing and then yet come right behind it and say, but hey, don't, don't, don't go be confused, you are rich. That's, 
That's one of those paradoxes that you come in, in Scripture at times that really ought to make you stop and consider what is it that that, that verse really means? How could Jesus say that? Well, he could say it this way because even though they didn't have anything in the way of material possessions, they had something worth infinitely more. They had God. They had God on their side. They had the Lord Jesus who saw everything they were going through. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, when he describes himself as being poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul says, I don't have anything, materially speaking, but I've got everything as it pertains to what I need spiritually. There's great encouragement in our Lord's calculation here because it reminds us that how we tend to look at things and how we evaluate them in this life is not the way that heaven evaluates things. James Hamilton says this, he said, When Jesus comes on that white horse, outdated clothes, beat-up cars, Houses where the appliances have not been updated will cease to be indications of the fact that we are not wealthy. He says the only thing that will matter is whether or not you have the gospel. And if you have the gospel, he says you are rich. Now, think about that, but then let's also consider the other side of that coin. You see, the clothes that you wear the car that you drive, the house that you live in, the size of your bank account, all of those things may figure in into how you and I measure success and it may figure into how we look at other people and figure out who's successful when we're looking horizontally. But I want you to know none of those things have any permanent value whatsoever. In fact, if you ultimately measure yourself and others by those kind of economic standards, then you will have missed the most important thing which is that Jesus Christ has come to reconcile you to God and has made a way for you to find a way into His household because He died in your place. And by the way, the God that He has come to reconcile you to is the God that the Bible describes who owns a cattle of a thousand hills and that everything in this world falls under His subjection and He is the one who owns it all to begin with. So although this church in Smyrna was poor, Jesus makes very clear, look, even though you don't have any material possessions, you are rich beyond measure. Which interestingly enough, if we peek ahead, contrasts with what he says to the last church that he writes a letter to. In chapter 3, he writes a letter to the church in Laodicea. And he condemns the church in Laodicea. He does not commend them. He condemns them because he says in verse 17, he says, you go around saying, I am rich and I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing. But what you don't realize is that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, the Laodiceans, they may have had material wealth, but they lacked the things that mattered most. They lacked faithfulness and they lacked holiness and perseverance and they lacked the love for God. They were spiritually bankrupt. But on the other hand, the Christians in Smyrna, they had no material possessions, but they were spiritually rich. There's a lesson there for every one of us in this room to know. We must not allow the things that this world tells us are the things we must pursue. We must not allow the world's calculations to become our calculations. Notice the last thing that Jesus commends this church for persevering underneath, and that was abuse. 
He says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. The word blasphemy can also be translated slander. And what it really means is that these Christians were being abused by those Jews who were in Smyrna. We see that because they say that they were Jews, but they're really not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Significantly, the Roman government allowed the Jews not to go through the process of having to drop the pinch of incense and, and to state that Caesar was Lord. The reason that they did that is because the Jews were being amalgamated into their society. They knew that they were a monotheistic religion. And so they gave them the exemption of having to go through and do that. Well, Christians initially were given that same exemption. And you can imagine why. Christianity was seen as kind of coming under the umbrella of Judaism. And many of the first uh, heads of, and, and Christians were, were Jews to begin with. And so the Romans treated the Christians very much the same way they did the Jews. But the Jews became jealous of the Christians. They became uh, really jealous of them to the point where they began to go to the Romans and they began to say, look, these folks aren't with us. They're not a part of us. In fact, they're a cult and they worship. They don't worship the same God we do and you shouldn't allow them to get away with, with things because you say they're, they're a part of our uh, faith. They're not. And so they began to oppose the Christians and as a result, the Romans began to oppose the Christians as well. And so we begin to see that the Jews were poisoning the minds of those in and around Smyrna. And they were spreading false rumors and misrepresenting their beliefs. And the enemies of Christ were creating havoc for the Christians. And so they were being abused. So these were the things that the Lord commended the church in Smyrna about. He commended them for their perseverance in suffering. They had, been, they had persevered despite their affliction, despite their abject poverty, and despite their abuse. But then notice what he says in verse 10. He issues these Christians a command and he tells them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He says, in fact, he says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Now that's encouraging, right? You've already gone through all of this difficulty and then Jesus writes you a letter and says, I know what you're going through. I know what you've experienced. But then he gives this command, do not be afraid of the things that you're about to go through and you're about to suffer. In other words, it's not over yet. There's more that's coming. Specifically, he says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, here's the one thing I want you to know. Recognize the honesty of Jesus here. He never offered his people an easy way. Matter of fact, he, he told his own disciples, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross and come follow me. Jesus never said it was going to be an easy way to follow him. In fact, no one was ever induced to follow Christ under false pretenses. He was honest about the suffering. He was honest about the imprisonment. He was honest about the trials that were coming their way. Furthermore, we had to understand that the same Christ that had supported them and had undergird them through their previous trials and tribulations would be the one who would undergird them and support them in the future ones as well. And so he continues to say this. He says, I'm still here with you. I was here long before it ever started and I'll be here with you after it's over. I'm still the unending and the undefeated one. But then notice this. Some have really tried to figure out fully what the 10 days that Jesus speaks of here. The question is, are they 10, 24-hour periods that Jesus is describing? 
Or does the phrase simply represent a short amount of time? I tend to lean toward the second. I think that Jesus is talking about a tribulation, a time of a persecution that would hit the church in Smyrna that would last for a short amount of time and that the 10 days is there to describe that in a general sense. Here's what I'm fully, fully convinced of. The one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who's the first and the last and the beginning of the end, I believe that the Lord is encouraging these believers to recognize that they can hold on in the midst of what will end up being a short period of persecution because He's the one that's conquered it all. And He knows exactly what they're going to experience and how long it's going to last. And He was there before it started and He'll be there after it's over. I think the, the, the whole point of them being able to resist it and not fear it was because their hope was in Him. But notice not only as He says, do not fear, He says, be faithful. Specifically, He says... Be faithful unto death. As one commentator has put it, our Lord's exhortation to these persecuted believers was to be faithful to the extent of being ready to die for His sake. You see, this persecution that they were facing was more than just being called names. This was more than just having their wealth taken from them. This was more than just being ostracized and pushed out to the margins of society. Their very lives were at stake for having counted themselves to be part of the name of Christ. Some of you may have heard of the name Polycarp. Polycarp was a man who lived at the end of the first century and on into the second century. He was one to the Lord and in the area of Smyrna. And tradition tells us that he was, he was discipled under John the Apostle and ultimately was, uh, became the, ordained by him and, and became the bishop of Smyrna. In 156 AD, Polycarp was arrested because he refused to drop the pinch of incense on the fire. And he refused to say that Caesar was Lord. And it is said that those that went and arrested him brought him back and they were pleading with him the entire time. Look, all you got to do is just, it's, it's simple. Just drop the pinch of incense and, and say Caesar is Lord. You don't have to really believe it in your heart. Just do it because we don't want to have to arrest you. And Polycarp refused to do it. In fact, they brought him before the proconsul who demanded that he show allegiance to Caesar and to renounce Christ. And Polycarp refused again. And he says, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? When news of his capture reached the ears of the Jews that were living in Smyrna, as well as many of the pagans that was there, they all went out and gathered firewood to come and to, bring, and to make a, a bonfire upon which Polycarp would ultimately be burned to death. And rather than the challenge of his persecutors being met with, with fear, Polycarp said this to them. He says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is, is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. And then he ended this, why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. Polycarp was martyred for his faith there in Smyrna, and his faith tells us the nature of the tribulation that those who were faithful to Christ endured, even unto death. Now, when we hear such a story as that, we are probably tempted to just become saddened by it, and that's appropriate to a degree, but I want you to notice the promise that Jesus gives in verse 10. You see, in verse 10, Jesus says, look, hang on. When persecution comes, remain faithful to me. 
all the way unto death. And then he says, and I will give you the crown of life. Now those Smyrnans would have understood what that meant because they had a stadium, a large stadium in their city. And they hosted a lot of Olympic games. And they knew that every time someone won one of those games, they were given one of those laurel crowns to put on their head. And they knew that those laurel crowns were reserved for the ones who were victorious. And so when, when Jesus says, you stay faithful to me and I will give you the crown of life, they recognize this will be the crown that is given to those who are victorious all the way into heaven, all the way into eternal life. And that's exactly what Jesus said. In Mark chapter 8, verse 35, he said, for whoever desires to save his life and this life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. That's what leads me to the last point. The last point on your outline is the same as it was last week. It's the same call that he gives us at the end of every single one of these letters. It's a call to comprehend and to conquer. It's a call to comprehend and to conquer. We have to comprehend the fact that just as it was said of the Ephesian church, that the hallmark of the Ephesian church was that they needed to have a love for their Lord. Well, when we get to the church in Smyrna, we recognize that the hallmark for a Christian, for according to what we write here, is that suffering will come as a result of being united to Christ. This is exactly what Jesus said at the beginning of His Sermon on the Mount. The eighth beatitude that He wrote, the very last beatitude that began the Sermon on the Mount, says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, he says, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is their reward in heaven. Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 15, he says, look, if the world hates you, don't think that that's something weird. It hated me first. If you were a part of the world, then the world wouldn't hate you. But I've called you out of the world. You've been linked to me. And he says then, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You and I must comprehend this message. And we must not go crazy when, when we experience it in this life because we have been united to Christ that we experience the opposition that comes from the outside in. Everything that tells us the New Testament tells us we're going to experience it. We have to comprehend that message. But then we're also called to conquer. We conquer because Jesus says, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now contextually speaking, the person who conquers, the person who overcomes is the one who holds on until death. That's what verse 10 says. You remain faithful even unto death. But what we begin to realize according to verse 11 is that it's not that death that we need to be concerned about. It's the second death that we are concerned about. You see, according to what Jesus tells us here, it's the second death. According to Revelation 20, verse 14, the second death is the lake of fire where those who are thrown into it will experience its torments forever. It is the final punishment for those who refuse to humble themselves and be saved by God's grace and His mercy. John Stott summarizes our Lord's message this way. He says, if we endure through persecution, and by our endurance we prove the genuineness of our profession of faith in Christ, we shall escape hell, which is the second death, and we shall enter heaven, which is the crown of life. 
We may need to be faithful to the point of death, but then the second death will not claim us. We may lose our life, but then the crown of life will be given to us. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know all of this can occur only, only, only because of who Jesus is. He is the eternal one who has defeated death, hell, and the grave, and He has made it so that you and I can be freed from the penalty of our sins and be reconciled to the Father. And it is that that leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. Because of who He is, the Lord Jesus not only encourages, but also rewards the church that suffers persecution for His namesake. I love how James Hamilton puts it. He says, Jesus is worth dying for. And brothers and sisters, if He's worth dying for, you can bet He's worth living for. Only those who are gripped by something worth more to them than life can be truly courageous. And courage is precisely what Jesus is calling the church in Smyrna and what He is calling the church at Ivy Creek to be. He's proclaiming to us that He is bigger and that He is better than life itself. My question of you this morning is this. Is that your view of Jesus? Are you convinced that Jesus is better than life itself? Are you convinced that He's bigger than no matter what you're facing in life? Do you treasure Him more than you treasure life itself? Is He your all in all? Have you bowed yourself before the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And have you trusted in Him to save you from your sins and to receive you to Himself once this life is over? If not, then I want you to know that He offers you salvation. You can come to Him as a sinner needing His grace and mercy and you will receive exactly that. And if you've done that, is your testimony that you've trusted in Christ. If that's the case, then let me ask you, is He bigger? Does your approach to life reflect that Jesus is unending and that He is the undefeated one? Is your confidence in Him or is your confidence in your circumstances? Brothers and sisters, I want you to know, we do not know what the church will face in the days ahead. We have no idea what is coming our way. Perhaps there will be a time when we too will be persecuted because we refuse to bow our knee to another God or because we steadfastly hold to the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life and that we continue to say no man will come to the Father but through Him and Him alone. We don't know what will come our way. Here's what I believe though. God's bigger. God's bigger than anything that may come our way. And because He is who He is, we know that He encourages us and we know that one day He has promised to reward us if we remain faithful to Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us, unmatched, undeserved, unrelenting goodness to us. You desire for us to remain faithful to You even amidst the difficult times that may come our way. But You've already given us the promise. You're bigger. You're unending. You're undefeated. And if we have become part of Your family, You've opened up the riches of all glory to us. So what could we ever need that we don't already have? 
we can't boast in ourselves, but we can boast in you. I pray that you would find us faithful. I pray that our hearts would not bow to another. That we would not lose sight of the one who has gifted us with things that can never be taken away. We can never be, we can never be removed from your hand. So I thank you for that. I pray that in reminding us of your sovereign power and authority over all things, that you would strengthen our hearts. I thank you for this word this morning, and I thank you for this congregation of people. And I pray that you would empower us to live our lives for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name, amen.